Welcome to the Food, Family and Friends podcast, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. Now it's time to join your host, Vanessa Baxter. Vietnam, and especially Saigon, can really get under your skin. It's hot, it's steamy. It is so, so, so sticky when you're visiting in June and July. But there is something so amazing about Vietnam, and it doesn't matter who you speak to, they rave about it, they love it. There may be niggles, there may be things that they wish were slightly different, but the changing face of Vietnam is astounding. And I swear, if you can visit Vietnam, you will fall in love with it. Today, I'm talking to John and Cass. John is a Kiwi, but he has been living in Vietnam for a huge number of years and he is currently the hotel manager at the Caravel in the middle of Saigon. What he has seen over the last decade in Saigon is amazing. The stories, the changes, the hospitality industry in general is just burgeoning in Vietnam. Cass, his adorable and gorgeous partner. She talks about family, love, food and her insane journey from a crazy childhood all the way through to where she's at now. I don't want to give too much away. You need to listen to this podcast. You need to listen to the story and make sure you listen to the very, very end. There's some inspiration in here for all of us. There's some moments where you think, wow. I am so lucky. But without further ado, let me introduce this absolutely gorgeous, totally in love, totally wonderful and inspiring couple, John and Cass. John Gardner has never listened to a podcast. <laughs> So I'm sitting here with John Gardner and Kaz, his partner, in their gorgeous apartment at the Caravel Hotel in Saigon. So I'm very spoiled because it's kind of your home that you've invited me into within the hotel. So this is exciting. And you guys are laughing because you've never listened to a podcast in your life. And here I am interviewing you for one. <laughs> but John, you're the general manager of the Caravel. And we met many years ago, all three of us, about probably eight or nine years ago. Correct. And I remember where, I think we met, did we meet actually at the HSBC? Amazing buffet feast, I think, in District 2 at one of the expat houses. And you guys, the Caravel had actually set up the buffet in someone's house and you were there to oversee it. Correct. Um, back then, the the Caravel had done the outside catering for the CEO of HSBC. Uh, and I believe, from memory, I'd met you before, you, you and Tim before, here maybe at the Caravel. Oh, maybe. Um, but we met again then, and I think that was probably the first time you met Cass. Yeah, I think so. And it was, it was a vivid memory because it was just in this absolutely beautiful home with this gorgeous garden and this extraordinary food that you could not believe that you were actually standing in someone's garden. Like your hotel basically reproduced the buffet from downstairs here which is extraordinary, into somebody's garden and staffed it. And I just remember thinking, as such a foodie person, you're a food lover, like, how can that work? How can this all be? There were, I remember there were ice sculptures and things, and it's Saigon. It was about 30 degrees. It was amazing. So congratulations on behalf of your hotel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I did meet you guys there, and it was awesome. And I think we have met many, many times since. And what I re remember is it's always been 
over food. Food and wine and having, you know, a lot of laughs, but around a table. So I thought, great to interview you guys. So, Kaz, you can say hi. Hi, I'm Kaz, John's beautiful partner. Exactly. And you, let's, let's say, because John's from New Zealand, and that's another really cool reason for me to interview him, because he's from New Zealand, living here in Ho Chi Minh City. And you're actually Australian. Yes, I am. Australian, living here in Saigon. In love with the most gorgeous man in the world. I, well, I know you two are very in love, so we'll try. <laughs> this is a podcast about food, friends, and family, so it's really awesome <laughs> that you are friends and, and verging on being family, so that is very cool. Hey, guys, you, how long have you lived here? Uh, just over nine years. Yeah, it's a long time, isn't it? Same with you, Cass. Same here. Yeah. yeah. So what have you seen? Because I've obviously just been here um, with Education New Zealand and Trade and Enterprise New Zealand for this fantastic event that we held in the hotel. But I've obviously had a few days since then to walk around the streets and I'm absolutely blown away by the changing food scene in Saigon. Could you share for the listeners? Because many people who listen to this podcast are probably people who think, wow, it'd be fantastic to visit Vietnam. Let's have a listen to some people who can share their version of Vietnam because they live there, which is always quite different to someone who's travelled. Could you just yeah, have a well, chat? I, sure. I, I think there's possibly a, a perception from people that have never been here that Vietnam, or particularly Saigon, is a little bit backward when it comes to food offerings. In actual fact, you can get almost any ethnic variety of food you want in the city, and it's changing almost daily. Uh, the amount of new restaurants that are opening up, we can't keep up with it. It's, uh, there's new restaurants opening almost daily, and uh, um, anything you want, from it, it's, uh, and the quality is excellent as well. Uh, what do you think... Do you think that that is, I mean, many people think, oh, gosh, what a sad change. It should all just be lovely, gorgeous, fresh Vietnamese food. From someone who lives here and is immersed in the culture, and, and obviously you love Vietnam or you still wouldn't be here after nine years, how do you feel about those changes, you know, the fact that there are so many different ethnic foods to choose from, so many different restaurants to choose from? Do you think that's a good sign of the city change? being able to offer so much? Uh, I, I think for tourism it is, and I think uh, it gives the locals some opportunity to try foods they would never get an opportunity to try. Um, but having said that, um, there's no shortage of very, very good Vietnamese food uh, restaurants, and uh, you can get you know food, Vietnamese food that from the Delta, from Central Vietnam and Northern Vietnam, which is totally different uh, in its style, and there's an enormous variety of restaurants serving great Vietnamese food from sidewalk uh, plastic stool little uh, little cafe things to, to to really expensive fine dining Vietnamese food yeah I was really quite chuffed to see that there still are the street vendors at night in particular like during the day I don't think there's as many as I remember but at night it certainly becomes quite vibrant with street vendors how about you Cass do you enjoy the street vendors at night, you know, do you, do you eat on the street or do you not? We, we eat on the street very, very often. In fact, we're featured in one of the local books here that's being developed by a friend of ours. It's all about the great um, street food that you can find in Vietnam. Um, obviously, we do hear them. We see them. Uh, maybe because you're traveling through, you haven't seen uh, them at night. They, they come out at night mm. and they hit their little bell going, tok, 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 
and I would wake up at two o'clock in the morning feeling very hungry. So they are still around. John would wake up and he'll probably think, oh gosh, they're noisy. But I'm like, no, I'm really hungry now because those are the awesome noodles that you would find. Um, you know, whether it's featuring chicken, pork, beef, but beautiful, beautiful broth that, um, that, you know, Vietnamese people survive on. And, you know, when we're talking about Vietnamese cuisine, there's 90 million people here. So there's 90 million bellies to feed. So the food scene is pretty much 24 seven. And the 2 a.m. food carts, is that breakfast starting or is that? Something finishing. I can never quite work out what is actually happening at two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we're, we're not sure whether it's people going home or people starting early, but uh, they're around. And uh, as Cass said, you know, she she gets hungry. I just want to throw a shoe at them and get them to <laughs> trying to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be quite cross, I think, at two o'clock in the morning. But yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's a gorgeous mix of culture that's going on at the moment here. The changing face is actually really positive. I was quite worried when I travelled here that I would be sad at the redevelopment. You know, obviously the loss of some buildings is sad. But I, when I noticed the main street that's been now turned into a promenade and uh, many people are like, oh, that's really, you know, that's really sad. That's a big change. I actually think how fantastic at night. It's extraordinary. It's family. People are eating and drinking together. They're sitting in little coffee shops and tea shops. Kids are riding on those crazy hoverboards up and down the promenade. It's got a real quiet sense of um, almost of Europe, of like passeggiata in Italy or something. I think it's fantastic because it's bringing the whole community back together again mm. rather than sending them back into their homes because you can't be on a street because it's the traffic's too crazy. Mm. Have, you, have you seen yeah, that down there? That's correct. And... Um, the other thing it's done is open up a massive variety of uh, restaurants that are going along that Huynhuay Boulevard. There's a huge amount, and all these buildings that were once old apartment buildings or little nooks and crannies, now there's little restaurants going up all over the place. You go down at alleyways, and wow, where did that come from? You know, and it's yeah, I think it's quite exciting for the centre of the city. Yeah, that building you've mentioned, I spotted that the other night. It was like it's like a really old apartment building that in any other city would it's dilapidated, really, isn't it? And then you look up, and every little balcony is a different tea or coffee place or a little bar or a little cafe. I have, I sadly have not had a chance actually get in there. Is it like, do you use a really old lift or something? Or do you have to well, I'm not even sure. We, <laughs> go we, up we, the we, we walked up there uh, some time ago now, um, and the lift was working to go up, but we couldn't get it to go down when we wanted to come down. So. <laughs> but I think most people had to climb up the stairs. Yeah, yeah. So it's a fair way up. It is a fair way yeah. up. Yeah, but it's gorgeous and it's fantastic and it's exciting. I It was really interesting what you said about giving the Vietnamese other another opportunity, maybe that's what we forget to look at, that for the Vietnamese, this shift and opening of all these other ethnic restaurants is a huge eye-opener for them because the students that I have met from Vietnam certainly haven't been exposed to other people's cuisines. And if they're here and they're able to work with them, then their whole world will be open through food. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, it it is because a lot of these people would never have the opportunity opportunity to travel. So, you know, food to the Vietnamese, well, not just Vietnam, but I think most Asian countries, it's it's very central to their whole culture. So uh, to try different foods is uh, pretty exciting for them. Yeah, it is. It's their way to travel. So travel through food. So this is my whole mission in life is to bring people together around food. And I think, you know, the collaborative cooking competition that we did hold in your hotel, I noticed a newspaper article actually today in New Zealand and the Kiwi student said that she had found it very difficult because one of the 
boys from Vietnam in her group hadn't been able to speak a word of English. And then on stage, she was completely blown away by his ability to put the food together. He, I think he had been responsible for the entree. And when she saw how he put the food together on the night and rose to the challenge, she went, oh, my gosh, he is communicating to our group via the food. He can't speak to us in his language, but we have all just stood here and produced this amazing meal together with no language. And I just like, I wanted to cry. I was like, yes! <laughs> food yeah. does bring people together. Absolutely. Yeah, it totally does. So what's your... I'm using, oh, you're going to hate this question because you've already told me you don't have a favourite food, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> but no, if maybe not a favourite food, but you know, where would you just love what comfort food? What's your comfort food, Cass? Oh, definitely Italian. Definitely Italian. <laughs> definitely okay. Italian. It's so Moorish. It's so homey in a way. Um, mm. It's strange that I'm saying that it's homey, but because I'm coming from Australia. But you know how multicultural Australia is in terms of the different types of um, cuisine that we have there. So for me, I feel very good um, with Italian food. I feel very, very good when I cook Italian food for the family. I'm like Mama Cass in the kitchen. Um, I love all the flavors, the freshness of uh, Italian cuisine. And um, I think I do pretty much of a good job. Look how yep. chubby John is. <laughs> Aren't you glad we pulled her in for this podcast interview, John? That's <laughs> uh, true. Um, you know, Cass is a fantastic cook in her own right and can cook food from, well, you name it, any country. But when we travel for, to different countries, we just we really get excited about trying the local food. We're really into food in a big way. And that's why we don't have a favorite because we just love pretty much all food. Mm. And I don't think there is bad food out there. It's probably bad when it's cooked wrongly. Like, for example, if uh, vegetables are overcooked, you know, when they shouldn't be, they should still have the greenness or crunchiness through them. It depends on which type of veggie it is. But I, I think there is no such thing as bad food. Um, it's about how it's been prepared. Maybe someone prepared it without much love, and that really, really changes the whole uh, taste profile. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and I think that there is a far better education nowadays around quality produce and quality produce speaking for itself, and I think the whole world understands that better now than, you know, when <laughs> poor parents were boiling everything yeah. um, and, you know, we're just eating really just mushy vegetables and, and mushy food in general that all the flavour had been long cooked out of them. But not just the flavour, there's all the goodness. And the pro Absolutely, and all the vitamins and all the goodness. Um, even just like boiling beef and I just, oh yeah, actually it was just a really horrible era. But I mean, I guess, you know, Australia, it's come from the British thing and same with um, New Zealand and there was a whole war that went on and people were trying to survive on nominal ingredients and I guess they weren't as fortunate as we are sitting here. We've been able to travel, you know, we are able to cook from all different places because we've had that opportunity to have our eyes open and we're not in a period where we can't get our produce, you know, we pretty much can get whatever we want, so we're, we're quite blessed. So how about you, John? Is your comfort food Italian because that's what Kaz cooks or do you, do you no, have another no, favourite, no. do you think? We actually do, we're, we're pretty much aligned when it comes to food. Yeah. Um, I like seafood a lot. I really enjoy seafood, um, but having said that, I also like a good steak as well. But um, Italian food, both of us love Italy as a country, mm. and we just love going there and just trying the foods and the pastas and all sorts of stuff there. It's uh, it's just really good. I um, wonder if that's also come, apart from the fact that you obviously love it, I wonder if that's also come because you're living in Asia. 
So to be able to go to Italy and it's so different. The cuisine is so different. It's like, yes, you know, this is my break from, from the street food of, of Vietnam where we live. Yeah, Maybe. We also like spicy food. Um, like here, we, we put chilies on, on most of our food. And I don't know where that comes from being a Kiwi, but um, I just, I've always loved um, spicy foods. Even from when I was a kid, I used to love curries and things like that, really hot, spicy foods. Did your mum and dad, who cooked it when you were a child? Mum, mum cooked mum? at home, yeah. And I, I'm just trying to think. I think I was the only one that really liked hot curries and things like that. And um, did she cook those? Yeah, or? she did. Yeah, but yeah. why did she cook curries? Oh, well, we used to have curries every now and then, curried eggs, curried sausages, simple stuff. So you know, more of our kind of Aussie Kiwi Aussie curries. curries. Those sort of curries. Curry powder. And I was never in, yeah. introduced to chilies because I didn't know in those days, you know, going back mm. many years ago, we didn't have chilies in, in New Zealand. No. But I always had this, this, uh, this taste for, for hot, spicy food. I remember mum cooking curries from the Australian Woman's Weekly. You know, and that's, I'm the same as you, John. We're probably quite curry a similar powder. age. It was curry powder. Yeah. yeah, totally. It was just, but that was the first introduction, wasn't it, to something from a different country? It was like risotto came out of a box yeah. in those days when I was young. I think it was called Ricerisa or something awful. And you just sort of reconstituted it into an electric fry pan with some water. But that was the very first introduction to understanding what a risotto from Italy was. And, you know, we've all come a long way since then. But, yeah, I mean, that's hopefully what the Vietnamese are going to realise now if it, if some of these restaurants can be affordable enough for them to go to uh, or to work in and to be able to see foods from other countries. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's the only drawback, I suppose, is that the ethnic restaurants here tend to be a bit more, a lot more expensive than the local, mm. local restaurants. So it, it eliminates a lot of the uh, population to be able to try some of these foods. But those that do have a bit more money, uh, they could certainly afford to go. And when you do go to some of these ethnic restaurants here, it, very often at least 50% of the, the crowd is locals. Yeah, it's awesome, isn't it? And that's also what I love about Vietnam. It's very mixed. You don't see places where Westerners are sitting and Vietnamese don't go or vice versa. I mean, in general, once yeah. you're in an yeah. Absorbed into the city, everyone's just sort of doing the same thing as each other. I mean, I'll equally sit on a plastic table and have a coffee um, with a group of Vietnamese as hopefully, you know, walk into a restaurant and find a table of Vietnamese next to me enjoying the same meal. So that, I love that about this country. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. So what about um, foods like, uh, well, what about your good old kiwi roast? Do you get a chance to do that here? Or a barbecue? I mean, you're in the hotel. Obviously, you have to live in the hotel. You're a great cook, We've Cass. got a story. So you have a story. Awesome. Okay. So ro- roasts, living in the hotel, having a roast is no problem at all because, you know, down on our buffet every day, we have a roast. We have, in fact, we have two or three ro- different types of roasts every day on the buffet. So, Sunday roast. Yeah. yeah. And and very often we have a... a we won't go to the restaurant, castle cook a, a roast at home, you know, roast chicken or, or beef, whatever. Um, but on our last trip back to New Zealand, we bought a baby Weber. Oh, and where and, does that and live? It's out on our balcony out there, our, our oh. tiny, tiny little balcony. We haven't even used it yet. I just, we just set it up just the other day. Actually, when we finish this podcast, I'm going to take a photo of you guys on your tiny, weeny little balcony with the Weber to go on the web page to match the show notes of this podcast. Because that is just too cute. There's the little Kiwi coming in. And how did you end up here? How did you end up in Vietnam? Did you travel through your job before you ended up and sort of settled into Vietnam, John, or did you come straight from New Um, Zealand? No, 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 no. I I left New Zealand 31 years ago. Wow. Went to Australia for 10 years, 
uh, travelled around, uh, joined a hotel company and got transferred all around Australia, started off in Perth and then went to, you know, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, back to Auckland for a short time, um, then back to Melbourne uh, again and then up to Asia. So in the last 21 years I've been travelling around Asia, started off in Thailand, Indonesia, Cambodia, Singapore, in China for six years and then down here. Wow. And uh, I was working for... The large international hotel companies, Accor and Intercontinental Hotels, and then I got headhunted for this job, mm. and uh, it was a it was a lifestyle choice. At uh, at my old age, then I decided that uh, <laughs> I wanted qual- the quality of life was more important to me than uh, than climbing the corporate ladder. Mm. So, and I really, I was, I love the caravel, and I love when you walk in. I mean, it's obviously a beautiful hotel, and it's a five star hotel, but it is. Saigon. It's not just another, and we won't name names, but just another hotel chain where you could, once you're in, you could be anywhere in the world. You know, it's the stock standard that represents the brand of that hotel. And I love that the Caravelle is quintessentially Vietnam. Um, although it offers a fabulous standard, um, it is really just like, oh, wow, now I really know that I'm in Saigon and I love it. I loved staying here. I felt very honoured to be able to stay in your hotel. I've only ever eaten in it before, so... <laughs> It was quite gorgeous, and I particularly loved the breakfast where the girl, every single morning, would cook one of the soups. So most mornings I had fur, but a couple of mornings it's not a fur. It's a different type of noodle soup. And I loved that. I videoed her every morning, by the way. Just <laughs> I'm sure she thinks I'm quite strange. Stalker. <laughs> I'm a stalker. <laughs> but it's great because you can start the day like that, and you know that it's safe to eat that here. You know, for people that are worried when they're traveling, you know, they know they can come, they can have the typical Vietnamese breakfast, but in an environment where they feel safe and comfortable before they get used to eating on the street. Because it must be hard for people. I mean, we're all sitting here saying, of course we'd eat on the street, but for the everyday traveler, that can have, you know, that can have a bit of a fear factor. Should I be eating this? You know, where do I stop and eat? Which is the right place? Can I drink the ice? You know, things that we've probably become so familiar with that we don't worry about. And we've probably been become so fairly immune to maybe the little bugs and things that might upset uh, other people's stomachs. Uh, we've been in Asia for so many years that, mm. you know, those, uh, yeah, mm. iron stomachs. Exactly. And if you were going to travel in Vietnam, is there another sort of favourite spot that you would go to? Like, do you love going down to the beach or do you love going up to Hoi An or, or do you sort of prefer to try to get out of the country and see other places when you travel? Um, Lately, we've preferred to try and get out of the country because we've seen quite a bit of Vietnam, although we do like going to Hoi An, Nha Trang, Da Nang, uh, and we've done that recently in the last uh, few weeks. Um, but there's so much of the world to see. Uh, that's the thing. And, uh, you know, we like to get away to, to another country if we can. Yeah. And how about your families? Do you get to go, go back home and see yep. family much, Cass? Um, we travel to Perth once a year, and then we travel to Christchurch once a year. So that's two big trips as it is for us. Um, but, and then, like John said, we, we try to do small trips around the region, or if one of us is traveling on business, then the other one would follow, especially if it's more than four days, because we just can't cope being away from each other. Oh, this is the story <laughs> of food and love. Food and love. <laughs> 
Now, Cass, in your family, so we've asked, I asked John how, like, about his mum cooking. What about in your family? Who cooked in your family and what sort of food did you grow up eating? Okay, so when I first arrived in um, Australia, that was in the early 70s, mum was always holding down three jobs, same with dad. And I remember one of mum's first jobs is actually a housekeeper for the priest down at Rivervale. And so being a housekeeper, she would cook, she would clean, she would look after her three children while at the same time as cooking and cleaning. And um, she learned how to make roast, amazing roast. Um, she learned how to make pasta. She learned, uh, you know, many, many cuisines. And I think that's where we got exposed to so many types of cuisines um, around the world because these priests, you know, they have a different um, menu every single night. So I I think there's a blessing in that because um, food comes to me at a very, very early age, even though um, I still remember those early days coming to Australia. We were extremely poor and we stayed at a hostel with other refugee Vietnamese families. And all we had was rice and we used to eat it either with um, soy sauce or with cut watermelon in our rice. And that's all we had. And um, it was a real privilege when mum got this job as the the housekeeper for the priests because um, we also got to eat whatever leftover they had. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I think that people who have been listening to this who may not have either looked at the web page before listening or read the show notes are just going to have to be – I'm just going to have to explain because they have not seen you, Cass, and you sound completely Australian. <laughs> and all the listeners are going to be like, hang on a minute, what just happened there? <laughs> so, Cass, you might just want to explain where you came from and how you ended up in Australia just a little bit more clearly. <laughs> okay. I left Vietnam at the age of two as a refugee on a boat. Um, we landed in Malaysia and we stayed in Malaysia um, at a refugee camp for about six months. Um, my dad used to work in the States, so his English was obviously much better than other people who were just escaping by boat. Mm. And uh, one day they said to him, you know, Vin, it's time to get your two kids out of this country because they're only two and three years old. So where would you like to go, Vin, and you and your family? So patriotically, Dad said, anywhere where there is freedom. And they sent (laughs) us to Australia, which is brilliant because my mum still tells the story about us just wearing the clothes that we had and wearing flip-flops went on the plane, got off the plane, got to Perth International Airport. They took our flip-flops away and they came back and she said they were brand new. They were disinfected. And so she was very, very proud to walk (laughs) out of the airport with these brand new pair of um, thongs, as we call it in Australia. (laughs) Uh, Jandals, if you're from other places in the world. That is so amazing, Cass. It's so amazing, isn't it? But I think it? all of us refugees, we have a story to tell. And yeah. my fortunate thing is we survived it. We survived the sea, which is a very treacherous and unknown, um, you know, Mother Nature is unknown, I guess. And um, so we survived that. That's one thing. The other great thing is I'm very proud to be Australian. Mm, yeah. You're amazing. Well, you kind of got two things to be proud of. You're Australian, you're here, um, and loving Vietnam. And yeah. I'm sure, you know, there are many Vietnamese who, you know, are proud of, of what you've achieved because not all stories end up so positively. Um, and I've met some amazingly inspiring um, Vietnamese people while I've been here and listened to some of the backstories and just think – It's such a reminder, isn't it, John? It's such a reminder to us who just grew up in a regular family, in our own home country. And yeah, I love being Australian. I love being an adopted Kiwi, but you know, life's been pretty 
pretty cool for me and my kids certainly have a very blessed life. And then you hear your story and it's like, whoa, yeah, um, harsh reminder and, you know, hats off to you because you're beautiful, you're here, you're making the most of life and, you know, you're passionate about everything you do and, you know, your mum, you know, she must be so proud. She must be proud of being able to say, wow, look, what, look, she was only two and we had to take her from her homeland. Yeah. But when, when she comes and visits us, we make her work for us too. So. Oh. <laughs> You do not. We do. So we have a favorite dish that mum cooks up. It's a very southern uh, Mekong Delta kind of dish. Mm-hmm. It's called Tat And it's pork braised with um, whole eggs. And she, she does it in beautiful eggs, um, boiled eggs that she, she puts inside this um, pork clay pot. And she cooks it overnight. And then she puts it into Tupperware. And then she freezes it for us. So if she's here in Vietnam, she makes a whole big pot for us. So that'll last <laughs> us a few months. I love it. I love it. Or if we're back home in Perth, she'll cook it for us. She'll freeze it. And we'll be dragging this Tupperware back to Vietnam. <laughs> I love freezer. it. That is awesome. Yeah. That is an absolutely gorgeous but we're story. we're a real foodie kind of family. We, we eat and we graze and we love everything that we eat. And I think there's a lot of love in our families. And it's always around food and, and wine, Australian, yeah. New Zealand wine especially. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, and your siblings, do they love their food as well? I mean, obviously, well, from what you've just said. Oh, my two brothers are excellent cooks. I mean, they cook for their family. They're brilliant. And I think mum's just taught us three how to do it really well for the family. Out of interest, uh, when she was, you know, working so hard when you first did get to Australia, uh, did you have to help with the cooking at home or were you literally just eating the leftovers from her job anyway? But once you, once you got into a better situation in Australia, did you help? cook quite from quite a young age as many Asian girls do yeah Yeah. yeah, absolutely um so I still remember you know at the age of six years old before mum and dad gets back from work I would already have to um make the rice so the rice has to be on the you know ready ready for mum to throw in the veggies and throw in you know the meats and all that but yeah that was my job doing the dishes and also cooking the rice So at the age of six. But that's what you do when you walk home from school in year one. Yeah, well, that's what you did, Cass. But I think there were many of us when we were six who were maybe being looked after in a different way. So <laughs> it's, you don't need to be quite so flippant about it. But I hope there are some parents who listen to this who, you know, also sort of stop and think how we do spoil our kids and we don't expect them to, to help because we're worried about the long day they've had at school. Um, and what I'm hoping to try to encourage people to do is to bring kids back into the kitchen, not just at the table, because I find that um, for my family, you know, I've got two teenage boys, the problem is they come home, they're exhausted, or they flip straight into wanting to be on devices, and the devices are quite addictive, so as soon as I say, you know, dinner's ready, it's on the table, it's like I'm actually needing to drag them away from something they're really quite obsessed about. So they're grumpy. So when they come to the table, they actually cross. It's like, I want to leave my device or I'm tired and Mm. you've made me do that and come to the table. Now you want to talk to me and ask me questions about my day and I don't really want to talk about it. And I'm hoping maybe through this podcast and through other areas of what I'm trying to do through, you know, my demos and uh, TV appearances or books that I might write is say, you could actually bring that forward a bit, even if it's just for the first five or ten minutes before you serve, get the kids to come in and remind them to help set the table or stir yes. something or get them to plate it up. Yes. You know, if you don't have time to help them or to, 
to get them to help you to cook, maybe they could just come and plate up. What That's a great right. skill for them to have to yeah. understand how to put everything on the plate. Start the conversation in the kitchen, carry the stuff to the table together, and then hopefully there's not this kind of point where they are just being forced to sit at the table, yeah. but it's actually become a little bit more relaxed as they yes. join Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe, you know, in these sort of... You will move mountains. I don't know, but I'm going to try. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, guys, it's so awesome. John, have you got anything else you'd like to share there, or shall we leave with Cass's story, which is so amazing? I think leave with Cass's story Mm. is an amazing story that, um, yeah, it tears me up every time I hear that story because I think, uh, you know, for her family to have left and escape in this tiny little fishing boat in the great big ocean and end up in Perth eventually. Mm. I think that's an amazing story, and I've got huge admiration for Absolutely. not just Cass's family, but all those families that had did similar sorts of things and survived, because a lot never. I know. And, um, you know, I, I really terrific um, uh, I just I think it's fantastic yeah I do and and we can't imagine I can't imagine so I can only wow say I think you're amazing the you know the woman I meet now is amazing and to have had that as a childhood situation is extraordinary Um, you know uh, I can't even begin to imagine but fantastic and I think in talking to you this whole room has just been filled with your love Food, family, and friends. So perfect interview for my podcast. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Food, Family and Friends podcast. It's really a pleasure to be able to share such amazing stories and journeys of our guests with you. If you would like some more recipe ideas, some tips, tricks, a little bit of blogging, then make sure you jump on the foodfamilyfriendspodcast.com website where we'll be sharing lots of information with you. Also, you can have a look at what other podcasts are out and about there in our world of podcasts on worldpodcasts.com. If you are in New Zealand, you can also take a look at podcasts.co.nz because there are some other fabulous podcasts. Thank you once again for listening. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure to have you on board this wonderful journey of the Food, Family and Friends podcast. Take what's good